Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our smartphone app, or at the website subchina.com. We offer original reporting and perspectives on a huge range of China-related topics, from the Belt and Road to the environment, from the latest online phenomena to the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from the sidelines of the AAS Conference, the Association for Asian Studies in Denver, Colorado. Jeremy Goldcorn was unable to join me today, which is regrettable, but on the bright side, I don't have to think of some clever way to introduce him. We still read with some regularity about officials taken down by Wang Qishan and the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection for various forms of malfeasance. Among the many questions that have been raised by analysts and scholars about Xi's anti-corruption drive, one is probably paramount, and that is this. It's, is the drive more about actually targeting corrupt individuals, or is it more about securing Xi Jinping and removing political enemies? Now, thanks to the work of our guest today and of his research partner, an answer to that question is emerging. I am pleased to introduce Peter Lawrenson, Assistant Professor in Economics at the University of San Francisco. Peter is the lead author, most recently, of a paper called Personal Ties, Meritocracy, and China's Anti-Corruption Campaign, which he co-authored with Xi Lu. It's deservedly been getting a lot of attention, in no small part because it's a good data-driven paper. Today, we're going to unpack that paper and examine what it says and what it doesn't say about the anti-corruption drive, at least in its first few years. So, Peter Lawrence, and welcome to Seneca. Glad to be here, Kaiser. Peter, uh, before we get started, some of our listeners who also listen to Syndicate Network shows like Tech Buzz China and China Econ Talk will have actually heard about this new program uh, that you are offering at the University of San Francisco. And you're, you're actually personally involved in this. Uh, tell, tell us about that program and about your role. Uh, and by the way, this is not a paid endorsement. I'm just giving you a freebie. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I appreciate the chance to talk about it. Um, so this is, uh, starting this fall, we're uh, accepting our first class for the Master's in Applied Economics program at University of San Francisco. And the focus of this program is going to be on the digital economy. So it's going to be the first economics master's program uh, really anywhere in the world that is entirely centered on understanding what economists are doing in tech firms and learning that skill set. So what that means is learning the, the economics ideas um, that underlie what they do. So understanding game theory, auction design, market design, reputational systems, things that, that economists have been thinking about for, for decades but have really now had the opportunity to uh, put into place when they're designing markets like those run by Uber or Airbnb, right, that are bringing people together trying to make business work. I'm directing the program. And... Uh, I got involved in it because it's it's fascinating to me, and there's so much going on in San Francisco. Well, a lot of my 
grad school classmates uh, have dropped out from their tenure track jobs or jobs at the Fed or whatever to uh, to join the tech business, both in the startups and the established firms, um, because it's just it's just so interesting to not be doing academia, but actually to you know, take <laughs> these concepts and you're not worried about peer review. You're worried about like, is this going to work? And I'll find out next week, you know, and it, you know, it's, it's really going to matter for the world. Right. So so it's just fascinating in that respect. I mean. Well, you know, I am here today, and I've got you here today to prove that uh, dry academic research can also be really fascinating and interesting, because this really is. I mean, I, I, I've, I've really enjoyed picking apart this study. Um, let's talk first about what previous corruption, anti-corruption campaigns have been like, and what, what was different this time. Right. So, yeah, so there have been, you know, the, the Chinese government uh, and the party has, I think, from its beginnings, even before 1949, always worried about corruption or, or misbehavior of some kind, that the idea of party discipline, you know, goes way back to, to those Leninist roots. And they've always acknowledged it to be a problem and launched various campaigns to fix it um, at times. But they always, almost always kind of stuck to the small fry. Right. And, you know, there were, there were a couple exceptions. The, the mayor of Beijing in the mid-90s, um, party secretary of Shanghai in the, in the 2000s, you know, but uh, at higher levels. That was like 2002, right? Yeah. In Shanghai, it was, uh, I think it was 2005. Oh, was it that late? Oh, no, no. Sorry, 2002. Yeah. Anyway, um, and the... Uh, so, so they're always, you know, mostly small fry. Occasionally, someone would go down, but it, it seemed like it was more of a one-off, and right, everyone right. was always a little bit unclear whether it was because that person was really especially corrupt or just happened to be, you know, on the wrong side of some kind of political uh, political battle, and that was the way to remove him. And it was it was that the signal that you thought made this one different? Uh, when, when, when you sort of decided, uh, you know, we ought to pay attention to this and start gathering some data on this uh, when you started to see some tigers in, in, in the trap as well? Or or was it just, was there something else about this time around that seemed uh, like it warranted closer examination? Yeah, that was, it was really the, the scale of it. So um, uh, my co-author really took the initiative on this project uh, and sort of brought it to me and got me involved. And he so Shilu, he was a graduate student at Berkeley uh, in economics at the time, and now is a professor at uh, the National University in Singapore in the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. He came to me and said, you know, I think this, this corruption campaign is really interesting. Something's going on here. You know, there's just so many people going down. And initially, it might have been a story about how it's a, a purge just of particular opponents of Xi Jinping. But, you know, there's there's more and more people going down, and they're, they're not all his enemies, and so there, it seems like there's something worth looking into here. So what made a couple of economists decide not to stay in their land and to venture into something that would usually be sort of the territory of the political scientist? Uh, that's a good question. Well, so I, I'm, I'm both. Um, I've taught in economics departments and political science departments. I've done PhD work. I started my PhD work in the political science department and then switched over to an economics department, and I've published in both. So uh, that this really is my lane, is, is the, the where these things come together. <laughs> okay. Good, good, good. You sort of straddling the, uh, the median there. Let's talk about how you designed this research, about what data set you used and how you proposed to actually extract conclusions from it. I mean, because I think what stands out is this is a very data-heavy, a very data-driven study. Who, who contributed the main ideas for what you were going to look for, for sort of proxies of corruption or indicators of, of actual meritocracy at work? Yeah, I mean, so these were definitely came out of uh, just uh, lots of conversations um, between me and, and she, so I'm not sure... Uh, you know exactly which which idea came from from him or from me at what point, um, but the the key you know the key problem in trying to study 
quantitatively or or even systematically in any way um, corruption is that you only hear about what happened or what someone did after they go down, right? So you can't just look at the people who went down and say, okay, well, look, this is how corrupt they are. This is what makes them differ from someone else because you can't take for granted that, in fact, they were more corrupt than anyone else. It might just be that they were the ones who, who got arrested. So we pursued a few different strategies with this and basically looking at kind of those those two questions that uh, Kaiser that you mentioned at the start, like what evidence is there for sort of a, a network effect of particular people being targeted or particular people or, or groups of people being protected? And then also we looked at what evidence can we find that the people who were targeted were more in corrupt. fact corrupt right, yes. right, right. so uh how did you source the data for the study and and i mean i still, I still guess we haven't decided yet now what were the proxies that you decided how did you decide how did you uh let's sort of there's two pieces of this as you said first let's let's start with the second part of the that you, you mentioned how do we decide whether somebody who's gone down was in fact corrupt how do we gauge the levels of corruption in the, the geography over which they had jurisdiction Right. So we used, um, we sort of built on, on uh, work other people have done looking at um, the idea of meritocracy in China. So the idea is that people are promoted based on their economic performance, right? And if you talked to, you know, any official at the local level, um, you know, through the 90s and 2000s and said, you know, how do you get ahead in the Communist Party? I think they would tell you, you know, it's development, it's, it's doing these projects, it's bringing in business to my town. And the way that people have uh, quantitatively tested that was by looking at the GDP growth of uh, of a particular city or, or region while it was under the under the jurisdiction or under the control of a particular official. So the idea is meritocracy is if you uh, well. So as as uh, as your listeners may, may or may not know, people are rotated very very frequently through the Chinese system. So they they only serve you know basically three to five years in a particular position, like mayor of a city or party secretary. So you can just, there's not an official term limit, or at least the term limit is usually not the reason why they get moved, but they spend that short period of time and then they get promoted um, or not. And so we can look at who got promoted. And in a, the idea is meritocracy would say that the right people are getting promoted, people who perform or who otherwise ought to get promoted. And there's others who've gathered some some evidence in that. Um, in that direction. So conversely, what we looked at is really where the meritocracy seemed to be breaking down. Right. And I can see how that works. So if you look at, at somebody, uh, you, you look in an area and you count the number of people who were promoted despite poor economic performance, poor GDP growth in that area, you can probably say, well, this guy was promoted despite the poor performance, evidence of corruption or the breakdown of meritocracy. But the, the, the other claim seems a little more difficult. And this isn't what you addressed, but the other claim that if if somebody is promoted and economic performance seems to have been good, it isn't necessarily because of this person's good work. It could be any number of other sort of secular uh, forces at, at, in play, right? I mean, you, you can't isolate the variable as this person's good work. So, I mean, while while this doesn't in in, in any way defeat the central claim of your your paper, it does call into question whether you we can go on to say, and this is evidence that China's system is in fact quite meritocratic. Yeah, I mean, I think any any economist would say, you know, we're, we're constantly complaining in, in the US that, you know, please don't give your president credit for whatever happened in the stock market this week. That's or right. In the, in the GDP that's exactly what I had in the past couple of years, right? And, and that's generally true. I mean, especially, you know, 
That's especially true in the U.S., where it's such a large, diverse economy where no individual has that much control. Um, it's it's still true to an extent in China. You know, we're, we're using GDP growth as a measure of their accomplishment. It's not it's not the only measure. Um, you know, you also see uh, a tendency among Chinese officials to do sort of show projects. You know, look, I've got an airport, or look, I rebuilt the city wall, or something. I've created a tourist zone, and so they're they're doing a lot of things to to demonstrate. Um, their economic management to the higher-ups. But it just happens that, you know, because these these macroeconomic figures are published, we can look at them. Right, right, right. And how did you source the data for the study? Uh, how much of this was just simply available through sort of, you know, newspaper reports, or how much of it did you re- required more digging? So, so this is, um, uh, I'd say, a little bit of a trend, both in economics and political science, um, that you know, it's getting harder and harder to get the inside scoop in China or to get access to people to talk about things. Um, and so uh, a lot of us are moving in the direction of like, what can we get with with secondary data? Um, and in this particular case, so it's, it's all it's all basically out there if you know where to look and how to interpret it. So, you know, we're looking at macroeconomic data at the city level. So that's all uh, available in databases. Um People's promotion patterns, their past histories right, is all very I mean, available. Right. Yeah. Um, or what about people who got sacked? I mean, that's always reported. And in- well, so if they if they if they got sacked in terms of like what you know left their job and what they did next, we we that that becomes available immediately. And then um, what we I mean, did to, for the actual arrests, right. we used the CDIC data. So, so uh, or, or not data, but they they publicize. They don't publicize everyone. Everyone they publicize. People they choose to, you know, once they've gotten far enough with their investigation, you know, they may have been under Shuangwe for quite a while by the time this report comes out. But once they've decided that they're guilty, they announce that they're that basically they announce they're guilty, and then and then the courts are allowed to do to do their work and to confirm that the party was in fact right. Shuangwe refers to this system where, where people are summoned to appear at a particular place at a particular time, and it's just become a word that just sort of means you're. you're you're screwed. You're going to be. <laughs> yes, it's, you're going to have. You know, it, it's going to involve cattle prods or something. Yeah, that's that's the general perception. I mean, it is the idea is there. You know, remember they're a revolutionary party, so it's like if you're a member of a, of a revolutionary underground party and your boss says, you know, show up here for a meeting, then you do it. But the way that what looks to outsiders is, you know, the boss of a large multinationally active firm disappears for a few weeks and no one knows where he is, even his shareholders. Or right, right. the the party secretary of a city suddenly goes incommunicado and, you know, starts missing meetings and, and no one knows or no one's willing to say what happened to him. So did you guys have to manually then just sift through newspaper articles and the CDIC data and stuff like that to figure out? Or were you able to use an AI algorithm to do that? Or I think um, so. Some people are moving towards the AI algorithms. That's and that's something that we might do as a follow up. But yeah, this was this was done the, the old fashioned way. So just digging through, um, you know, all the all the different sources and trying to you know uh, figure out which ones are sort of more credible um, and uh, could really tell us what was going on and which ones were were, were less credible and and shouldn't shouldn't be sort of included in the data set. Okay. So that was the second piece. So the first thing he said was about to look at the, the sort of clientelist networks, right? How did you do that? How did you figure out who was actually connected to whom? I think I remember reading that you used, you borrowed from Google, right? You, you used the good old sort of page rank algorithm. Uh, can you explain how that works and why you thought that was the, the, the best way to, to, to look at these networks of connection? Right. So there's one question is how do you how do you document the network? Like how do you decide who's connected to who? So so this was actually something that um, that we hit on early on that this provided 
uh, a window into some things that you can't normally see in Chinese politics, right? right? You know, there's always people talking about, oh, this person's in this faction, this person's in that faction, or these guys are buddies because I heard they worked together in Shanxi 17 years ago, and they were so therefore I assume they're really close. And and people have researched that um, for for various uh, other studies in China, you know, looking at whether people maybe overlapped in in their work environment or whether one of them was. Probably, you know, the, would have been the boss when someone got promoted. Therefore, he, they must be, you know, he must like them. Uh, or, you know, did they go to the same university or they're from the same province? They have that kind of hometown connections. So we have all these proxies, you know, to suggest that these people are more likely to be connected than um, than just, you know, two random uh, cadres on the street. But what we could do is when people get arrested, especially when two people get arrested, then if they have a connection, that's much more likely to be reported. So it might be reported in the original uh, Discipline Inspection Committee report saying, you know, this person gave bribes to that person to get promoted or, you know, these people were engaged in corrupt collusion of some kind. Or the other thing is, you know, the, the media in China are obviously uh, heavily censored and, you know, subject to party jurisdiction. So they know what can be reported on. So there's a lot of things that a good Chinese journalist will know that's going on. They'll know who's connected to whom, but they're not allowed to talk about it right. uh, under ordinary circumstances. Those guys are both still in office. But if two people both go down and they're now labeled as bad guys, then you can start reporting on some things that maybe you already knew, but you couldn't talk about before. And of course, you know, the Chinese journalists, you know, just like any good journalist, they love to report on the muck if they're given a chance to. So, so if you turn them loose, then then they'll tell you a lot of things. But they only get turned loose if if both those people go down. Right. So, how does the page rank whole thing the, uh, work into this? How does that that, right. that play in? So, so we build a network of you know uh, these connections are not um, you know it's not like a, like a say your your connections among your Facebook friends right where you're sort of equals. Generally, these connections, the information we had is you know this person's subordinate to that person. It's hierarchical, right? Yeah, it's hierarchical. So one person you know, in some sense reports to another, you know, just like a page can refer to another. Exactly. Um, right. And so it's actually a very simple application of the of the page rank algorithm. It's not as complicated as, you know, what the original uh, Google folks, um, you know, had to had to deal with. But but this gives us a way of um, not just saying, oh, this person's connected to a lot of people, therefore he's important, because maybe he's connected to a lot of people, but that's because he was, you know, there was one den of thieves in some township that went down and got reported about. Then we'd have, oh, this guy's connected to a ton of people, but none of them matter. What we want to look at is who's connected to people who are themselves connected to a lot of people who are the, who themselves have a lot of subordinates and find an objective way to sort of uh, calculate that, like who's really at the top of the heap. That's great. Uh, so there's a central claim to the work, and that is that the one that's really the, the claim that's grabbed all the headlines and all the attention, uh, that is basically that the anti-corruption campaign really does seem to target corrupt individuals, uh, but that it doesn't touch people who have close personal connections to Xi Jinping. Uh, one of the obvious questions for me is this. Are the people close to Xi Jinping all people who appear to have risen on merit? If you look at these people, did they uh, ha- were they in charge of economically successful regions? Right. So that's a little bit harder to pick out because they're a smaller number. Um, so the it also has to do with some issues of how we set up the, the research. So to get a comparable group... Um, looking at, you know, whether performance mattered, we looked at city level leaders. Um, so that's, that's one tier of, um, of the political system. But when we looked at who was getting protected, we looked at provincial level leaders. So provincial, um, provincial party standing committee people. So there's about, you know, 10 or so per, uh, per province. 
and we looked at that pool. But those people don't necessarily have individual control over um, an economic zone. Right. And the people lower down, they may not have – they're less likely to have the kind of direct connections to Xi Jinping that we could – um, again, we can't we can't document directly because obviously Xi Jinping is you know still in charge, so no one's going to be allowed to report on uh, who are his cronies. So instead, we have to use the proxies of you know did they go to the same university with him? Did they work together with him um, at similar levels back when he was you know in in local level government? Um, or yeah, I don't think those, those that's not hard to determine. I mean, I think those, those in, with enough of those proxies, you can get a pretty clear sense of who is 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 individually connected to Xi Jinping. But I, I would think that you would be able to then look at, even if they are just at provincial level, you can use that, that other measure that you did in that sort of first run, that first run that you did where you looked at the World Bank survey of, of, of perceptions of corruption uh, conveniently from the year 2012, you know, the year right, right before, uh, and then looked at whether that province had, had a lot of arrests in it, a lot of, a lot of people taken down. Couldn't you have done the same thing with the people associated with Xi Jinping and said, okay, so this guy, you know, ran Jilin and was Jilin uh, uh, at or near the top of the, the corrupt provinces list from the World Bank survey? Um, well, so they didn't have a full list of provinces. They had they did 22 cities, right? Because implementing – this is a survey of, of business people of, you know, uh, how did they – did they view – basically, did they view corruption as an obstacle to their business? Um, so it was not naming names or anything, but it was in right. 2012, was corruption a problem where you worked? And what we did find uh, is that places where uh, more people tended to report that that corruption was a problem, um, also they had, you know they tended to report problems with like taxation or regulation or the judicial system. Uh, those also subsequently had a lot more arrests. In but fact, it's not, they had some of the big, big arrests. Yeah, um, right. but well, but not so many from the from the sort of uh, big tiger networks actually. Well, um, actually, I mean, I, when I was looking at the, I, it, it, it was notable that the three big tigers were in provinces that ranked highest among the the, uh, the number of arrests and uh, correlated to the, the, the perceptions of of, of anyway. So just, that's, uh, yeah. that's for, for for next time. Uh, well, let me, let me go back to something else. Um, because you know the other interesting claim, or one of the other many interesting claims in, in there, are findings in there. Uh, was that the individuals who were targeted, I mean, we're talking about the tigers and, and not the flies, um, that Bo Xilai didn't really number among the most networked and connected of the people who went down. I think that most people would have expected that he was kind of the, the major mover behind all the, the mischief and the, the machinations of, of 2012. And it was, in fact, you know, the, the, the three big tigers that you named. So, uh, and now let's go into who they are. So Zhou Yongkang, I think a lot of people know who he was, you know, because he was a Politburo Standing Committee member, of course, and you know had security in his portfolio. So, right. You know, he was a really, really close. I'm a big power base in the petroleum sector. And, yeah. And, right. uh, the other two maybe are not as familiar. Lin Zihua, uh, who was sort of a fixer and a right hand man to uh, actually, you know, a holdover from the Hu Win period. Who, of course, when his son was killed in a, a fiery blaze on the North Fourth Ring Road, uh, it wrapped his Ferrari around a, a like a, a concrete pillar. Uh, it's horrible, but um, that that's when he maybe came to a lot of people's attention. And the third one, Surong, is probably even known by le- less people. Can you quickly ID who they they were, uh, or Surong especially, what what he was and uh, sort of his power base was? 
Right. So, um, yeah, so you did a good summary of the, the first three. So Joe Kong, you know, he was at the Politburo, so he was at the highest levels of the state. He was in charge of the, the what they call the political and legal affairs group, which is basically in charge of, you know, the, the public security and everything, and a lot of other things and the legal system. Um, and previously he'd been at the top of the petroleum uh, ministry and also had been the uh, the chairman of uh, one of the big like Sinopec or something. Like yeah. And also was was head of Sichuan. Um, oh, right, right. Of course, for, he, for he ran Sichuan. Yeah, he ran right, Sichuan. Right, and, so then, um, and then uh, Ling Jihua, yeah, he was in this sort of weird job that, you know, there's something called the general office, which right. sounds like, you know, someone would just be like a secretary, but their job is to, to draft party directives and memos and, you know, decide what documents will be classified and, and arrange memos and things. And apparently this gives them, it's sort of a low-key job, but it gives them a tremendous amount of power right. um, and, and influence. And Su Rong was... Um, he was uh, he was more of a local government guy. He had been the party secretary of uh, Gansu and Qinghai, and then and then most recently was the was the Jiangxi party secretary. Um, and he was basically went down for you know more corruption in his province. Right. And uh, again, to Jiangxi, Shanxi, where where the Lin Jihua was based, and then Sichuan, where where Zhou Yongkang was based. Those were the three that ranked the highest in the t- total number of of people taken down. I remember. Yes, that's right. At at the um, at the level of the uh, at the provincial level of government. At, at the provincial yeah. level government level, right, right, right. Uh, that's that's fascinating. So, Peter, I think many of our listeners are maybe even too young, or I hope they are, um, to to remember all that transpired in that really tumultuous year of two thousand twelve. Uh, you know, in in the run up to Xi Jinping actually taking the presidency early the following year, uh, really. Crazy year that involved attempted defections to to the U.S. consulate in Chengdu by so, so the, the whole Bosi Lai scandal, uh, the the murder of Neil Haywood coming to light, and then you know uh, this rumors of of an actual attempted coup. There were people who were moving against Xi. Certainly, uh, can you remind people of what happened that year? Right. So um, so with with Bosi Lai, um, he was the the party chief in Chongqing. He was very similar to Xi Jinping in a lot of ways, like uh, charismatic, good-looking guy, you know, Ling, yeah. highly articulate. Um, he also had a distinctive policy style, which is quite unusual among Chinese officials. You know, you're, the the goal is always to be as bland as possible until you're on top. Um, right. And but he was known for in Chongqing, he was kind of pursuing a different model from the rest of the country, um, more populist, uh, very heavy anti-crime, anti-gang approach. Um, also very statist in terms of how the economy was going to be run, so not so market-oriented as, as everyone else had been in that period in the past 10, 20 years. The Chongqing uh, model. The right. Chongqing model. And also, you know, bringing back a lot of the Mao nostalgia, you know, that right. revolutionary era stuff, playing the songs and trying to get everyone to, you know, feel that kind of patriotism. Uh, the shorthand was party. strike black, sing red, remember? Yeah, that? that's exactly right. So strike black meant go after the black or hei shohui, the... the the uh, organized crime syndicates, and then Sing Red was, you know, sing these communist, nostalgic, you know, cultural revolutionary songs, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's funny going back and, you know, reading about what was his distinctive thing, and it kind of, you know, I feel like uh, Xi Jinping kind of borrowed a lot of that, that playbook, <laughs> um, you know, later. I mean, he's, he, they, they seem a lot more alike now than, uh, than they, they did back then when everyone thought Xi Jinping was going to be a big market reformer and, uh, and you know, maybe even a liberalizer. Um, and he was, he was a major player, you know, so... Also had that revolutionary background. A uh, dad who was one of the one of the big movers under Mao, and of course, therefore, also suffered under Mao, just like Xi Jinping and his family. And you know, people had had taught before Xi Jinping 
was clearly lined up to be the the next general secretary and president, there there was talk about Bullitt taking on that role as well. So he really was, if you were thinking about who you'd want to purge, it's kind of the guy you'd think, okay, this is the one you want to sideline. Right. Um, and but what happened was just completely uh, out of the blue for for everyone. Um, he uh, basically his his former police chief fled to the U.S. embassy. Um, not in Chongqing, but in the next next nearest large city, Chengdu in Sichuan, um, and uh, had a meeting which, you know, uh, has not, I think, been officially disclosed what went on, but he had a meeting there and asked for asylum, and they said, I think, again, not disclosed, but I think the answer was, well, you're just a crook, and you're, you don't really deserve asylum. <laughs> right. for, you know, you're not being oppressed if, like, you're you're a member of a gang and your gang buddies don't like you anymore. But but what he disclosed and what what came out uh, very rapidly after that was that there was a British businessman who was accused of you know maybe having some kind of uh, spy connections or being some kind of fixer who had been apparently murdered by or on the orders of Bo Xilai's wife and Gukailai yeah. Gukailai exactly and. Uh, basically, you know, the, the investigation spiraled very rapidly. Um, something that, that journalists have told me, you know, Western journalists told me is that they were actually surprised by how there was a lot of people willing to talk about him. So I think once it was decided oh, it was that this was pretty opened, clear that, that, that this was allowed and kind of deliberately allowed. Yeah. Right? So, so there were people providing information directly to well-placed Chinese journalists and then to, to yeah Western exactly China, so. so it wasn't it wasn't like a lot of things that happen in China where it's covered up and sort of once they decide you know if they can they wait until like six months after it's all resolved and then they tell us all you know what they the version of the story they want to have happen it, it played out um, on a public stage much more than than usual um, so so in February was when uh, the police chief went to the went to the embassy um, by March bull was removed from from office and by the end of the year he'd been uh, removed from all party posts and and placed under arrest. Um, so that was, and that was all before Xi Jinping uh, formally took power. He was already anointed as the successor because he'd been named vice president in the previous um, previous party congress um, five years previously. But um, the, uh, but he wasn't actually in power yet. So then, then end of 2012, Xi Jinping takes power um, as head of the party. Then, as a formality, then the beginning of the year, he becomes he's uh, elected president um, in 2013. And then, then sort of the crackdown, the main crackdown started. So that happened, started in 2013, but 2014 became really intense uh, with just large numbers of people getting arrested. Uh, and also in 2014 was when several of these big tigers went down. Um, Xu Tsai Ho, who was a, a top military leader, like literally the top military guy aside from Xi Jinping. And Guo commander yeah. Yeah, and then... Um, and then in the, in the political side of things, um, Zhou Yongkang... Um, Su Rong and Ling Jihua, who we mentioned earlier, uh, who again were, it had never happened before that like this many people at high levels actually went down. So there's, you know, the, the saying you should, you should swat at a fly, but never, never hit at a tiger. It's right. a sort of journalistic slogan for a long time. Uh, but the same thing was really true for corruption allegations. If you were high enough up, then whatever you'd done, you know, no one would, no one would dare start the kind of battle that might erupt if, if everyone started pointing fingers about what the other top guys were doing. Uh, but that was what was happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was surprised, though, that relatively few of the direct associates of Bosi Lai were brought up on charges during that time. Right. So that was a really interesting thing, uh, a pattern that we looked at. Um, so so we mentioned this this uh, network you know, that we developed of uh, people with reported connections and uh, who was arrested and and 
who they were reported as linked to. So, so using those reported links, building this network and looked at who was on top of it. So, you know, Zhou Yongkang, Su Rong, Ling Jihua, these three guys really, really stood out. And then, you know, if you if you rank people, you know, using using the the Google PageRank algorithm, <laughs> then um, you find, you know, Bo Xilai was like he was uh, below twentieth. Yeah, um, right. So just way way down the list. Uh, which and what that means, you know, in practice is that in our data there were not many people reported as being his cronies who are subordinate to him, um, compared to you know a lot of other people, and that's that's interesting to us because. You know, if you're thinking about, again, removing the political competition, the guy who, you know, under maybe extraordinary circumstances, but realistic ones, could come back and, and be uh, the the one who undermines or, or opposes the current leadership, Boa seemed like, you know, the most plausible character. Right. Um, and if it were Stalin, right, you would expect that, like, you know, him and all his relatives and associates to the fifth generation would be out in the gulag. <laughs> um, but that's not... Uh, that's not what we see in our data. Um, instead, you know, there's this focus on, you know, Su Rong, Ling Jihua, who, you know, they were powerful, but there was no sense that they were direct rivals, to, yeah, direct yeah. rivals to, to Xi Jinping. Fascinating. You know, you, you point out that uh, among the Politburo Standing Committee members, it was only Xi who was able, apparently, to protect his associates, that the others were not able to. And you, you said in a footnote in, in the piece, I remember, that, that this was not actually the case in previous crackdowns. Uh, what accounts for this? What accounts for, for uh, the ability previously for uh, Politburo Standing Committee members to to protect their, uh, their associates? How did it change this time? I mean, is it just because this time no one was protected or... That does seem to be uh, does seem to be the case. So yeah, so we looked at we looked at all the provincial Politburo standing committee members um, as of 2012, and we looked at who who had some connection to Politburo leaders, also to the Three Big Tigers, um, and to Xi Jinping specifically. And so having if you had a connection to Three Big Tigers at that point, you were much more likely to go down. If you had a connection to Xi Jinping. Um, in the sense that you you went to Tsinghua or you were born in Beijing or you worked together with him at some point uh, when he was in the provinces, then you would absolutely not go down. Like literally zero of them uh, right. were arrested. But then, yeah, when you look at if you even when you clump all other six Politburo members together, we didn't see a sort of protective effect. Their their associates, people who we believe to be connected with them, were just as likely to go down as anyone else. So the question is why why were they not able to protect their people. And I think it does, and you know, this isn't something we can observe directly in our data. So this is, but you know, my, my sense is this really does show the sort of demise of the collective leadership. And the incredible might of, yeah. 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 The converse of that, the incredible might of, of Xi Jinping in a way that Hu Jintao did not, you know, stand above everyone else in the Politburo um, in, in this way. And even, you know, even Jiang Zemin maybe did not, uh, even at the end, when he'd been there for quite a while and cemented a lot of power, he wasn't uniquely powerful, and and having that unique level of authority that um, meant that he could sort of ride over the interests of other people at the senior level in the right, party. Right. So let's summarize then um, what what some of the, the actual findings are. And we've just, as we've just said, uh, it, this testifies to the the, the unprecedented uh, arrogation of power in the hands of Xi Jinping, the end of collective leadership. No, that's that's all obvious enough. Respecting the, the particulars of the anti-corruption campaign, the main claim is that it indeed, it looks as though people who were actually corrupt as measured by poor performance of, of the regions in which they were responsible 
uh, but promotion n- nonetheless. They, they were very likely to go down. And when we say very likely to, do, is there a statistic, is there a way that you, you describe the, the statistical effect? Uh, oh, um, I don't have that number offhand. We did look at it, but, but so it's, it's, it's pronounced substantial. It's very yeah, substantial. yeah. Right. I, I mean, well, substantial for you know, it's like if it's you know ten or twenty percent higher likelihood, like that's a pretty you know. Uh, but it, I remember it's it not being like more than that. Yeah, right, it was right, right. it was substantial though. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so they were more so people who got promoted when you wouldn't have expected them to be promoted based on performance and also based on other indicators of you know what sort of the usual way that you advance within the hierarchy in the areas where. I, uh, Joe, Ling, and Sue, these three big tigers, were influential. People were getting promoted sort of despite that. And those those same areas were where we see a lot of arrests. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then the, the, the major claim, again, is that, that Xi Jinping's people were protected. And this connects yeah. connect to what I, what I said first. But right. Now, um, what claims does that then knock down? I mean, you've dispensed with some uh, – your evidence is, is – you know, pretty solid that what does it falsify now? What are some of the, the claims that have been out there as part of conventional wisdom that you, you are ready to say farewell to? Well, you know, as an academic, we're, I'm always in favor of further research and, and willing to be overturned. But I think it does. Uh, it certainly, you know, the, you could, I'd say it, it knocks down things, which I would, anyone who really knows China probably knew was a straw, they're both straw man. But you nevertheless read in the media and you know by talking heads and public policy figures. So the one the one extreme version is that this is you know this is Stalin or this is Mao. This is just someone you know chopping the heads off of everyone who who opposed him in order to to gather all power to himself. And w- you know we can see that it 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 is discriminate. So it's going after people who are. By, by our best indications, it, it does seem to be targeting people who are, who are more corrupt. And so that, you know, in that sense, the, the party deserves some, some credit for they're actually, uh, you know, regardless of, you know, I, I disagree with the means, but the, the objective of cutting back on the level of corruption that was uh, going on in China, it does seem like they're really trying to do that. Yeah, it's level, right, right. Yeah. And then the flip side of it um, is the idea on the other extreme that it's purely noble. I mean, this would be the party's line that, yeah, we're just going after the most corrupt guys and the most corrupt guys go down. The fact that Xi Jinping's associates were protected suggests to us that, you know, he is using his power to protect them. Although I'd, li- I'd like to see how their performance tracked against the, you know, the fact that they uh, were promoted. I'd, 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 I'd want that as the final piece of evidence to suggest that that part of the claim is true. I yeah, mean, that's it, something it could, we're following up on. There's a smaller yeah. number of them, so we can right. look at, at Xi Jinping. Like, we can look at what we can say is that in our data, the provinces that had fewer, fewer arrests tended to promote more on meritocratic basis. Um, but the actual number of people who are sufficiently directly linked that we could be confident in saying that they're Xi's people is, is fairly small. And so it, it uh, becomes harder to do uh, statistical analysis we could be comfortable with. So lastly, your study goes through 2015. Uh, is there any reason to believe that things have departed from the patterns that you've, you you guys have picked up on uh, in the in the years since? So we haven't seen. Um, so we haven't we haven't done the study on that. So you know this is you know, talking without the data, which as an economist, you don't my, my value is to talk. Well, my value is to talk with the data. You know, the journalists they they can tell you what you, what you can know without the data, and there is likely you know there they may well be right. Um, but, well, we haven't seen as many big, big people go down. Sun Zheng's high was the one exception. Um, but in terms of numbers, it's getting larger and larger. That suggests that it's certainly not slowing down. 
um, seems to be moving a little bit more towards you know people in the SOE sector, maybe not the not the government sector. Um, well, they already cleared out the government, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, which you know that you would, would be good if they, if they actually could right, clear right. it out and feel like they they'd made their point and and gotten the the worst of the of the rotten eggs out of there, uh, and then and then lighten up, then that might be an optimistic trend. Um, but it's not it's not it's not clear that they've actually made that judgment. It certainly hasn't been. Uh, um, yeah, it's not clear they've made that judgment yet. Peter, do you have handy the, the total number, at least by the time of the cutoff of your study, of officials who had been investigated? I think it was in the hundreds of thousands or in something? Um, I saw, uh, actually, from so from our study, we, we used people who were investigated and whose names were published in the CDIC by uh, by 2015. So that that's we were looking at by sort of the end first of wave. End right. of 2015, yeah. So we were looking at the first wave of the crackdown. Um, and... Uh, but that was that was just a thousand people who actually we could get their names. Actually, yes. The I was looking at some estimates last night. And I think people are saying you know that the total number as of end of last year was twenty to thirty thousand people wow. overall. Wow. And you know they're not all people who she didn't you know looked wrong at Xi Jinping someday. So it's pretty pretty clear <laughs> that they're you know he's he's got to have some other some other means of, of deciding who goes down. Uh, Peter, it's it's fascinating. I, I, what are you going to do next? Are you going to follow? Are you going to continue to follow this? Yeah, so I think there's you know a lot of uh, you know updating what we did towards the future, and I think looking at um, you know so is is the second wave like is there this evolution like you said that um, you know because if it was a one off then we could you know we we sort of were thinking like oh when this dies down that'll be a good place to cr- you know cut down or cr- sorry uh, to cut off our, our data collection, but it never it never died down, so um, that's why we had to just say okay well we're going to stop now and analyze what we have, <laughs> um, and so so then that raises you know is yeah, can we quantitatively look at, at uh, how things are changing over time? Um, I think there's a lot of interesting work to do, uh, you know, especially maybe with with some of these newer um, right. newer techniques like machine learning to try to do something broader about like saying, okay, who who are the outliers? You know, let's let's look at more than a few data, a few characteristics. Let's look at like the whole range of whatever we can, you know, plug into our machine and say, who do we expect to be promoted and are people who got promoted for the wrong reasons the ones who are getting arrested? Uh, and look, then also look yeah. at whether promotion is is working differently under C. I think it may well be because he's actually been less economy focused than um, than in the past. Like he he's you know raising you know to his credit a little, you know it seems like a lot more seriousness about environmental concerns. You know, not perfect, but but taking that more seriously. And and of course, social stability is a big focus for him. So it's less about who can who can rev up their economy as fast as possible. Well, still, there are KPIs against which you can measure performance, you know, yeah, even if they are yeah. you know, greening or what, what have you. Right, right. 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 So, Jobs yeah, so we can try to look at those and, and see, uh, yeah, what, what does get you promoted in, in Xi's China and, and how, that's, how that's evolving. Yeah, I would love to, to, to see more work on this. This would be, would be great. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, first of all, what kind of reaction has this gotten within uh, the academy? And also... Has the party tried to use any of this for propagandistic purposes? Uh, have you seen state media publish your your findings, or at least part of your findings, the part that accord with their their? I think that'd be a little bit tricky for them to talk about the one part and not the other part. So, um, uh, so far, I have not seen uh, seen you know. They find a way to do it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm yeah, I, I'm curious, but yeah, they, no one, no one's, no one's tried it yet, um, and uh, we'll just have, we'll have to see how that evolves. We also haven't gotten any, you know warnings about like don't present this or you know don't uh um don't talk about this research you know in china or something so 
um, it's kind of it's kind of evolving and and uh, um, so far no no blowback and no attempts to use it for propaganda purposes. Okay, and just to be clear, the paper is still in peer review process right now. Yeah, so the paper is the paper is going through the peer review process. It's uh, uh, in economics in particular, it's kind of interminable. Um, and uh, can can take years, you know. Usually, by the time something is actually published, everyone's already read it. Who needed to read it? Um, right. That's just the way the way it works in our discipline. You know, more than more than a lot of others, even. Well, the paper again is called "Personal Ties: Meritocracy and China's Anti-Corruption Campaign," and it was co-authored with Xi Lu. It was in Chinese would be Lu Lu Xi, right? No. Yeah, that's right. It's one of those damn names where you know these two solos. Let's let's move on to recommendations. But before we do that, uh, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you enjoy the reporting, the columns, the quizzes, the podcast conversations, and all the rest of it, the best thing you can do to keep us going is to subscribe to SubChina Access. For just a few bucks a month, you can really keep up on all that's happening in China, enjoy discounts or free admission to our events, and chat with our editorial team on our Slack channel. Tell a friend. Now, uh, recommendations. Peter, what do you got for us, man? So I want to recommend uh, sort of based on life experience, two sitcoms that um, I really, really enjoy. Um, so the first one is on ABC. It's called Speechless. And it's about a family with a disabled teenage son uh, who needs a full-time aide, uh, uses a wheelchair. Um, also, you know, the title comes from the fact that he can't uh, speak um, with his own mouth. So instead he communicates... Uh, using a device that very, very, very loosely, you could say, is kind of like what you've seen Stephen Hawking use, yeah. um, like pointing at you know pointing at words, and in this case, someone else actually reads it as you as you go through pointing it. Um, and he's and he's going to regular school, and the, the actually the show starts with him enrolling in a regular high school, you know, with with uh, um, you know just average Joe on the street classmates um, for the first time. And uh, so so this this resonates a lot with me because my own son. Um, is going through a similar experience. He's uh, he's only eight, so he's in elementary school, but he's in there with the other kids with his aide. He also uses a communication device, has trouble walking. Um, now, this all sounds like really depressing and earnest, but what what's great about this show is it's is it's funny and body, and it makes fun of everything about uh, being um, in in the world of disability. Was it's kind of its own you know surreal parallel world that uh, that the rest of you don't don't see, and so. Um, it really resonates with me, but uh, are you letting your son watch it as well? Uh, yeah, he he's not he's not he's still more into uh, into cartoons, I have right. to say. Eight, um, you know, but um, but you know, it's his, his uh, the whole family. So there's also two other children, um, two other younger children in the family, um, and I have other my other kids uh, watch the show and can kind of see their experience. There's Minnie Driver is the uh, the oh, yeah. female lead. She's the sort of disability tiger mom, which um, reminds me a lot of my own wife of like all the you know fights you try to get in politely with the school district to get you know all the resources you really need for your child and, and make sure they're fully included in the way you want um there's a goofy dad who plays guitar badly and likes obscure outdated rock music which i think guys are <laughs> not like me. relate with yeah um and uh and then i don't know if you if, if you know uh, reno 911 cedric yarbrough mm-hmm. from there is mm-hmm. uh, is the aide um and he's he's just really funny um, so that's one. Then the other one um, is uh, Kim's Convenience on Netflix. Oh yeah, um, and that that is it's just a Canadian. Korean. It's about a Canadian Korean family uh, running a convenience store. Um, again, it's a sitcom. Um, you know, the the parents are first generation. The kids don't even speak Korean that well. Um, and uh, you know, so it's it's hilarious, but also very sweet. And you know, if you 
uh, are Asian American or grew up around Asian Americans, um, there's just a, a lot You'll to connect with there. Lot, yeah, You'll recognize yeah. a lot of things, and, and they really capture um, a lot of that dynamic, both within the family and, and between the family and, and you know, the, the world around them. Well, those are two great recommendations. So Speechless and Kim's Convenience. Yeah. So ABC and then on Netflix. Yeah, excellent. Uh, I am going to, you know, speaking about, like, um, obscure music, I'm going to go with one of my musical recommendations. I'm going to recommend two playlists on Spotify. They're both sort of made by Spotify. They're not an individual user's playlists. Although, you know, I think there are plenty of them um, that are in that in that same couple of genres. They're related genres. Uh, one is uh, a playlist called Instrumental Madness. Uh, if you like instrumental rock, I mean, really, this stuff is just sort of, unapologetically showy-offy, uh, wonderfully uh, crazy amount of, of chops, just chops galore. A lot of these guys are, you know, eight-string guitar players or whatever. But, uh, you know, and, and I've, I've discovered, you know, 30 bands that, or artists that I'd never have, 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 have otherwise discovered. There's just a renaissance going on in, in these styles of music, in, in uh, sort of very, very chops-oriented progressive rock, uh, math rock, what have you. And the other one is uh, a, a subgenre of all this stuff called Gent, D-J-E-N-T, which is an onomatopoeia from, you know, the, you know, the, that, you know, the, the sound of a, of a, a palm muted, heavily distorted guitar, uh, playing in, you know, really heavily syncopated rhythmic patterns, you know, always really tightly with a bass drum. So it's, it's, it's crazy good. Uh, there's a lot of bands in this genre called Gent. Some that I would recommend, like Animals as Leaders, as, as one in particular, Meshuggah. It's a more me- metal kind of a gent band. But this particular playlist just again is has exposed me to lots and lots of others. Uh, it's called Got Gent, like Got Milk, or whatever. It's uh, again, it's it's a Spotify playlist, and you know you'll get a glimpse into the kind of nutty music that uh, I torture my family members with all the time at home. All right. Peter, thanks once again for, for, for coming and joining us. Uh, it was a great paper, and um, it was really uh, a pleasure talking to you about it. I look forward to reading more from you. Yeah, it was great to have a chance to, uh, to tell people more about it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm look, you know, looking forward to hearing good things about your new program at University of San Francisco. Thanks. So, and buy more ads. <laughs> <laughs> the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, Ta for Ta, and the brand new Middle Earth Podcast on the culture industry in China. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.